reminder to uh, parents, grandparents, guardians to uh, pick up the kids down in the fellowship hall following the service, and uh, hopefully many of you will be able to stay for that DA Kids Family Fun time uh, down in the fellowship hall is where that will be. So this morning we're going to be looking at um, a number of different passages, kind of a topical message this morning, uh, looking through the idea of being transformed through grief. Last week, we uh, started this series on good grief. And uh, whenever I think of good grief, I think first of Charlie Brown, you know, and uh, good grief. Whenever things didn't go well, it was good grief. Or uh, one of his friends, good grief, Charlie Brown. And so it's not that kind of, uh, what's wrong with you, Charlie Brown? Oh, aren't you going to get it together? But what does grieving well look, look like? Last week, we talked about grieving well. We looked at Psalm 42 and 43. And uh, we, we talked about need, that need to sit with our grief. Uh, sitting with it because grief is both crushing and confusing. And so because grief is both crushing and confusing, we don't want to sit with it. But the very fact that it is crushing and confusing means that we absolutely do have to. So the thing that we don't want to do, sit with our grief in the right spaces, the thing we don't want to do is the thing that we do need to do. And as we grieve, the author of Psalm 42 and 43, which I believe probably was David, set out this pattern for how do we grieve well? He talked about putting our hope in God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so downcast within me? Put your hope in the Lord, for I will yet praise the Lord, he said three times. And so putting our hope in God through the practices of prayer, through scripture, knowing that it's it's his uh, light and his life that guides us into truth. And as we look through prayer and in his scripture, it leads us to his presence, And as we come into his presence, our response then becomes this natural flow of worship for who he is and praise for what he's done, that the Lord begins to work and to comfort and to to walk us through that process of grief, grieving well. Last Sunday, following the service, we gathered for a time. And one one of the, the big reasons why we're walking through this short series on grief, on good grief, uh, was the unexpected passing of our, our dear friend, Rod Trout. And uh, we had a, a good time last Sunday, just being together, eating together, fellowshipping together, but then also being able to share together, to be able to, to tell stories, to be able to, some people shared some pictures, to be able uh, to give glory to the Lord for the ways that we saw God work in Rod's life and through Rod's life. We were able to to laugh together. We were able to cry together. And ultimately, we were able to be in the Lord's presence together, giving glory to God. At the end, our our time was closed with an encouraging word. And that encouraging word was, if I would summarize it generally, is that God is always working. And he's working in everyone's life that was there. And he's working in all of our lives, whether we recognize it or not. God is working. And the work that he is seeking to do is he is seeking to change us. He's using all of the events of our lives to change us. At times we don't want that. At times we don't want God to change us. I think we've all been there at some time in our lives. Maybe you find yourself there right now. God, I don't want you to change me. I kind of like it where I'm at right now. I don't want you to change me. 
But God is always working, and what he's wanting to do is work in us. He wants to change us. And the ultimate work that he wants to do is he wants to change us to be like his son, Jesus. Because he deeply, deeply loves us. Brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, there are some things, there are some changes that God wants to make in your life, in my life, that can only be made in times of loss through grieving. That's a big statement for this morning. There are some changes that God wants to make in your life that can only be made in seasons of loss, through grieving. You know, like, like an athlete or a, a person who's working out, if you only do the exercises that are easy and are fun, you know, give you the, the big biceps and stuff like that, if you only do those, you know, so you can walk around and show off those biceps, if you only do those exercises, you may feel like, wow, look at me. But there's a whole rest of your body that is underdeveloped. And oftentimes it's the exercises we don't want to do that are what we are needed to be able to be well-rounded and have all of our body worked out. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. There are things in our lives that God wants to do, areas he wants to use and bring development in that during times of loss, during times of grief, are prime times for him to do it. So if we believe that God's always working and he always wants to change us, then even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the midst of loss, he is a God who wants to use that time to change us and wants to do something unique. And so this morning, we, as we look at this idea of being transformed through grief, we want to look at grieving because grieving increases our capacity to do four things. There's probably more things in scripture, but these are four I believe the Lord wants us to look at this morning. Grieving increases our capacity, and there's sermon notes in your bulletin, to first become like Jesus. This is, we already kind of alluded to this, so if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, if you find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Grieving increases our capacity to become like Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, 28 to 30. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is his purpose for us? Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also be... He also predestined, and here's the purpose, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is God's purpose for us, that we would become like Jesus increasingly until the day that we cross from this life in the next and we are glorified, because that's what he says in verse 30, and those he predestined, chose before time, he also called to himself, and those he called, he also justified, in that we are legally made right before God, and those he justified, he also glorified. Make fully like Jesus. We're not going to become Jesus and 
the God sense, but we are going to become like Jesus, our older brother, the firstborn of the dead, among the dead. This is our purpose. This is what God intended for us from the very beginning of time. Think about this. God knew you before time ever existed, and he called you by name in love, Ephesians tells us, to be in relationship with him, to become like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grieving then increases our capacity to allow that process to take place, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. This is a good thing. You know, I, we often like to talk about, oh, live in the power of Jesus and live in the authority of Jesus and love like Jesus, all these things. But there's aspects that grieving and loss can only allow us to become like Jesus in. One of those is the fact that in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, says that Jesus prophesied about 600 years before he came, says that he was despised and rejected by men. What does it say? A man of what? Sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from men from whom men held, held, hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, if we want to be like Jesus, if we're going to become like him, if this is what we have been predestined to become, part of that is he was a man of sorrows. Now, does this mean that Jesus always was walking around like Eeyore, oh, woe is me, woe is me, you know, the cloud of gloom? No. Jesus was full of hope. (laughs) But he also knew what it was to experience loss, to suffer, to have all of these sorrows. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Teaches us a little bit about our posture before the Lord in prayer, doesn't it? Reverent submission before the Father. Now this verse, verse 8, is crazy. Although he was a son, preexistent as the Son of God, fully God, who became fully man. Although he was already a son, he learned obedience. Did he not know how to obey the Father before that? Well, he fully knew how to obey the Father. He came to this earth in obedience to the Father. But he learned obedience here on this earth from what he suffered and once made perfect. We'll come back to that in one moment. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews goes to length to talk about why Jesus is qualified to be the savior of the world. Drawing on the Old Testament to say this is the one who is prophet, priest, and king, the one who is worthy to be the savior of the world. But look at that. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, once made perfect, Does this mean that Jesus was not perfect? No. The idea of the word, the sense of the word perfect, is as if a person going through taekwondo or some kind of martial arts has completed the entirety of the training. 
Jesus walked through life and completed the training of what it means to be human. Because think about this. He learned obedience to the Father. He, he was perfectly obedient to the Father in heaven. But in heaven, is there any sorrow? No. Is there any suffering in heaven? No. Is there any poverty in heaven? <laughs> is there any homelessness in heaven? No. It's perfection in heaven. That's why we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done here on this earth as it is in heaven. We want heaven to come. So Jesus had to come and the training that he had to be perfected in, the training that he had to complete was to learn how to be obedient, to qualify him as a savior in his humanity, to go through everything. Because if Jesus only lived the high life, if Jesus was never touched by grief and sorrow and pain and loss, then he would not be qualified as a man God coming in man to be the savior of the world. He had to endure everything to be the second Adam, yet without sin. And so the training that he went to learn obedience through suffering, through sorrow, through grief, Jesus learned all that. Which in his humanity, he completed the course, the training, made perfect There was nothing the enemy could come and say, Jesus never did that. Jesus never grieved. Jesus never suffered the loss of a loved one. Think of Lazarus. He wept as he was there at his friend's tomb. He he never got, you know, Jesus, he never got sick. Jesus had everything. He never knew what it was to go through puberty. No, he did. He went through all of it. He was perfected in his suffering. He was perfected in his humanity. And learned obedience in the midst of it all. The training completed. And so if this was what Jesus did, how much more will you and I need to undergo that training ourselves? Will we need to learn obedience? Will we need to learn how to grieve in the midst of loss? Will we need to say, yes, Lord, I receive all that you want to do. Make me more like Jesus through the losses of my life as I grieve them well. Grieving is one of the many ways that God will use to increase our capacity to become more and more like Jesus. Which is why the thing we don't want to sit with, grief, is the thing we need to to walk through that process of grieving well. Grieving increases our capacity to become like Jesus. Secondly, grieving increases our capacity to experience joy. Grieving increases our capacity to experience joy. If you would turn to about the middle of the scriptures to Psalm 30. Psalm 30. In verses 4 through 5. This is another psalm that was written by David. As the temple was preparing to be dedicated. In Psalm 30. Verses 4 through 5. David instructs the people and leads them in worship. Tells them to sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. That's why we sing 
in services on Sunday, we're singing to the Lord. We're praising his name as saints of his. Verse 5, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Do you see what David is saying is that the Lord's anger and the Lord's favor are connected. That when we experience the anger of the Lord because of our disobedience and his loving discipline, when we experience the anger and the discipline of the Lord, it makes the favor of the Lord that much better. Amen? We can't say, whoa, look at how good the favor of the Lord is if we don't know what it is to experience the anger of the Lord. They're on this continuum. You can't have one without the other. It's the bad news makes the good news that much better. But the same, in the same way, weeping and joy, grief and joy are connected. We know the fullness, increasing fullness of joy when we are able to embrace the sorrow of loss. Those are connected as well. As I think about this idea, I think back to when I was growing up before there was sports channels dedicated to every single sport, like the NFL network and the MLB network and the NHL network and the NBA network, when it was just the ABC wide world of sports. Now, for some of you, this is like way before because I found this video from 1978. Okay, so you're going to look at this and be like, that just looks like a blob. This is about the best quality we've got that I could find. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports, and the catchphrase was, watch for it, the thrill of victory, and what is it? The agony of defeat. All right, so watch this short video. It's about 30 seconds long of that intro to ABC Wide World of Sports. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. Ah, the good old days, right? The ABC's Wide World of Sports. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. How do you know the thrill of victory? Only when you have experienced the agony of defeat. How do you experience the favor of God in increasing ways? When you understand what the anger of God is like. How do you understand the joy of the Lord? When you understand the depths of loss and you grieve and you mourn and you weep. Dr. Ron Walborn, who's the, the dean at Alliance Theological Seminary, came up with this idea of this pain-joy continuum. So in this, see, you have pain on one side and then you have joy on this side. And imagine these are two walls and these walls are connected by this line. And this line is the realm of feeling. And so if, if we don't grieve, if we don't really feel loss, then 
Loss and joy are just kind of here. And you're just kind of always in this place of kind of hollow and dead inside. The realm of feeling, you don't go high, you don't go low. There isn't real sorrow, but there isn't real joy. But the more we learn to grieve and to embrace that loss, the more the walls begin to spread. And the more we begin to feel in the middle. You know, God created us with emotion. He created us with the ability to feel. And so the more we grieve, those walls begin to expand. And we begin to really experience grief, but we also experience, on the flip side, joy. And the more we learn to grieve and really bring the losses of our lives to the surface and to allow the Lord to minister to us and to weep and to mourn, the more we experience grief or joy. The walls begin to move more and more. And that continuum grows. But when we shut it down, we just kind of live in this spot where we don't really feel much sorrow, but we don't feel much joy either. It's safe. We don't have to feel much pain, but we also don't have much joy. When I was 14 years old, my grandfather passed away. And I could not stop crying at his viewing. I mean, people were coming. It was supposed to be like a two or three hour thing. And it just went on and on and on because people, everyone knew my grandfather and people were just way out, outside of the funeral home, waiting, waiting, waiting. It just went on. And the whole time I just could not stop crying. And as we gathered together, finally, after the last of the people left, as we gathered together around my grandfather's casket, all of my aunts and uncles and my cousins and my grandma was there. And I just could not stop. I looked around and no one else was really crying. And I remember at 14 years old having this thought, what's wrong with me? Why can't I pull it together? Why can't I stop crying? Everyone else seems to have their emotions under control. Why, why, what's wrong with me? And I made a vow. I'm not going to lose control again. And I am still on that journey of allowing those walls to grow because, because of that choice to shut that down. I'm not going to lose control. I'm not going to grieve in a way that I can't be under control where it just comes and I can't stop it. And so I'm learning. I'm on the journey too of grief. How do you, how do you expand? How do you allow yourself to grieve well and experience and allow those, that grief to rise so that he can do what only he can do so that those walls begin to grow, so that feeling happens more. So we experience, though, weeping may last for the night, joy, joy comes in the morning. And so grieving allows us to increase our capacity to experience joy. Grieving also allows us to increase our capacity to comfort others. If you go back to the, to the New Testament, find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're in Romans to start. Go to 2 Corinthians. After Romans is 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verses 3 through 7, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Make note of that. We'll come back to that in a second. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. Four, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. This is back to point one. We want to experience, to become like Jesus, the sufferings of Christ are going to flow over into our lives. So also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. His sufferings overflow into us. Therefore, our comfort, his comfort also overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you will share in our comfort. God is the one who comforts us in all of our troubles. For the purpose, Paul says, that we would comfort others with the comfort that we have received. Receiving the patient endurance that only the Christ being formed in us can give. It's like on a cold day, like we've had some warmer ones, but they still come. We're not out of the woods yet. But one of the most comforting things on a nice cold day is a nice hot glass of tea. When you're freezing on the outside, drinking that cup of tea to warm you up on the inside. It's like that with the comfort of God. In the midst of our sufferings, the comfort of God comes and he pours his comfort into us. But it's for the purpose then of once we are comforted, then we are able to then pour out that same comfort into the lives of others. He's the one who begins this whole chain of comfort. He is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the one who brings the comfort of the Father to us. And he pours it into us so that as we are comforted, we are able to then comfort others. It's like a reservoir of comfort that we are then able to draw on to give away to others. See, there's, there's a principle in the kingdom. And that principle is we can only give what we've received. We can only give what we have received. And so that idea of back to verse three, the father of compassion, giving compassion and comfort to others is the direct result of the comfort and the compassion of the father poured into us. You know, if you're one of those people, and I know we're all built different. Some people are just more naturally like, comforting of others. We're drawn to people. You know, we feel others pain a little bit more, but 
if there isn't levels of compassion that's not like, oh, this is just how I'm wired, if there isn't the compassion of the Father when people are in sorrow and people are in grief, it may be one of those warning lights on the dashboard of your car kind of moments where you're like, have I really grieved well? Because if we're looking at others who are in grief and we're like, what is wrong with them? When are they just going to get it together? Just move on, would you? If, we're, if, if that's our posture, if that's what we're thinking when other people are in grief, it may be one of those warning moments for us to be able to say, what have I done in the area of grief? Have I done the work of grieving the losses of my life so that the care and the compassion and the comfort of the Father is poured out into me so I can give it away? Henry Nouwen says this, to the degree that we have grieved our own losses is the degree to which we are compassionate people. Let me say that one more time. To the degree that we have grieved our own losses is the degree to which we are compassionate people. We can only give away what we have received. Next week, we're going to finish the series looking at Job's life and his friends and how they interacted one with another for what does it look like? How do we come along practically to comfort others? Lastly, grieving increases our capacity to experience new life and resurrection. Grieving increases our capacity to experience new life and resurrection. If you're in 2 Corinthians, just move back. 1 Corinthians, Romans, Acts, and then John. To John chapter 12, and this is where we'll finish this morning. John chapter 12, verses 23 to 26. Jesus is predicting his own death. It's coming now to the end of his life here on the earth before his crucifixion. The the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, has just taken place. And so this is somewhere probably either late on Sunday or on Monday. And it says in verse 23 of John 12, Jesus replies in the midst of the conversation that they were having as they went up to worship at the feast. It says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves must follow me. And I, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus has his death, his impending death in mind, and he relates the natural to the spiritual in this picture of a kernel of wheat. That a kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die in order for it to produce many seeds. If it doesn't fall to the ground and die, it will remain just one seed. He's relating this to himself, and he's saying, my life is coming to an end. I'm going to lay my life down. I am going to die. But by my death, there will be many seeds. He has in mind the salvation of the world. By his death, many would be saved. Imagine if Jesus just came and did all he did, but didn't die. 
didn't lay down his life to sacrifice. He would have done an amazing thing, but he would not have purchased the salvation of the world because his life needed to be given in order for the salvation of many, for the fruit of many to come. Death, through Jesus there, brought new life and resurrection that is still being multiplied to this day. Verses 25 and 26, then he goes on and he says, if anybody's going to love me and follow me and serve me, essentially what he's saying is this is the way. (laughs) This is the way that the kingdom works. It's not keep your life, be that one kernel. It's being willing to die to self, being willing for your life to be laid down so that it would multiply, so that it would produce many, many, many times over. Above all else, it will require the loss of our own lives. As we go back to point one, being like Jesus. So as we think of grief and as we think about increasing our capacity to experience new life and resurrection, in grief, it makes sense. We know this, that when we are in grief, it's because something has died. It may be a person that we love. It may be a dream that we were holding on to. It may be a job that we've lost. It may be a relationship or a friendship. It may be a marriage. Maybe it's even a wrong that's done to us that needs to die. But as we walk through the process of grief and, you know, the whole Kubler-Ross thing, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Of In that beginning, we, there's denial when some, something dies. There's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining. There's depression. Until we arrive at a place where we are able to accept. Where we are able to let that go where we are able to let the kernel of wheat fall to the ground. Because when we let the kernel of wheat fall to the ground, then we find that what is left is Jesus. And when we can get to that point and we've grieved and we're left with Jesus, that's where he begins to have space to bring new life and resurrection. Because before that, if we were holding on to it, we're, you know, the process is, is, is natural to walk through all those things. But until we get to that place where we're able to, with open hands, say, Lord, I release it. I've, I've grieved it. I've come to accept that life has changed. This person isn't here. or This dream is not going to come to fruition. Or this job, I gotta go find something else or whatever it is. I gotta, I gotta grieve this thing. And I've come to the place where I've accepted it's not going to be that way. Now we're in a place where the God of resurrection is able to bring new life. This does not mean that we just move on like nothing ever happened. It does not mean that it's a replacement. It does not mean that we just forget about that person or that dream or whatever it may be. It's always going to be a part of our story. They're they're always going to be something that we make miss and come back to. But now it's there's space that we're able to say, okay, God, what do you want to do new? What is the thing now in this season 
that you want to bring new life to, that you want to spring up. Often it's not how we thought it would look, but it's beautiful. If you're in the beginning stages of grief, this spot right here just seems like, almost seems wrong to talk about. And if it feels wrong to talk about, that's okay. But this is what our God loves to do. He loves to, in our, in our sorrow, as he's doing these things, making us more like Jesus, as he's bringing joy, as he's bringing comfort in the midst of grief, He's going to bring, and this is the hopeful picture, he's a God of new life and resurrection. Behold, something new will spring up. Something new will spring up. Not to the casting away of that thing or that person, but just, Lord, I trust you that you're the God of resurrection, you're the God of new life, and you will do something new. So even as we sang this morning, Lord, Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up. Lord, here's where I'm at with it. Would you have your way? I trust you that you'll do something new. Grief has a unique way of being used by the Lord to do what only he can do in us, that we would become like Jesus more and more, that we would experience joy that we would experience comfort and that there would be a new life that will come. So I just want to take a few moments just to pray together as we would close before the worship team would come to lead us in a closing song. And I believe even as I've prayed and thought about this message that the Lord's just asking us one simple question. Are you willing? Are you willing to be transformed through grief? If we were to say these are over the 14 things you're going to have to do, we'd say no. But he's just asking for our yes. He's just asking for our yes. And so this morning, just want to give you a few moments of space whether there's that grief, that loss that you're experiencing right now or not, maybe you're not in a season of loss right now. But no matter where you're at, just to be able to say, Lord, my answer is yes. To wrestle that out with him in these moments and then I'll pray for us. Just take a few moments to give him your yes.
And so, Father, in this moment, you're with us. You're with us in our sorrows, and you're with us in our joys. You're with us when we tangibly need your comfort, and you're with us when we feel as though we're doing pretty good. You're with us, Father, when life is springing all around, is springing up all around us. And you're with us when life or dreams or hopes have died. You're with us at it, in all of it. And you, the God who has chosen us before the foundation of time to be brought and justified in relationship with you, you're the one who is doing that work of making us like your son. It's what you've chosen us to be, like your son. And so, Father, we, this morning, together, just simply say yes. Would you use, as a church, as we grieve Rod's passing, would you use it to cause us to become more like Jesus? Would you use it, Lord, to bring deeper joy? Would you use it, Lord? Would you use it, Lord? to pour out comfort so that we might comfort others. And would you use it, Lord, to give us hope that you're a God of new life. Help us to grieve well, Lord. And use it. Use it for our good and ultimately for your glory. We thank you that as we grieve, we grieve not as ones without hope, but as ones with amazing, eternal hope. You are our hope, and we place it in you. We say yes, in Jesus' name, amen.